people feel relaxed and talk and just make it as comfortable as possible. It's the way to go. Maybe I should change the name to Pillow Talk. I know. I was kind of <laughs> thinking like feminists in bed. Feminists in bed. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure that there is, there's like a YouTube, I need to research this. Somebody told me about a YouTube show called Feminists in Bed where, um, which is basically this, like women just hanging out on one of their beds talking about like whatever it is they want to talk about. I'm for it. I'm 100% for it. You could not go wrong. Well, be, until we change the name, this is Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast that uplifts everyday feminists and feminism. And I'm so thrilled to be here. It's a little awkward because I can't quite look at you. I'm looking at you with my mind. <laughs> Even though I'm, my head is so comfortable on this pillow, I have to I kind of side I have to side eye you more than I want to. But I'm here with my good friend Alice Asher, who is, in addition to being um, a great friend, uh, a great mom to the cutest two year old, sorry to all other two year olds, but she really kind of has you beat. Uh, and is a, a brilliance. I'm not sure exactly what your title is. I think of you as like an Uber nurse. You're like, like a supreme nurse. That's like the greatest compliment. And <laughs> if I could like have business cards that say Alice Asher Supreme Nurse. Nurse Supreme. Oh my God. Um, I might have to think on that. That I've, might happen. I don't see why why you shouldn't just give yourself that title. I wonder if CDC would let me put that on my cards. I, I mean, I'll do ask. you really need permission? Could you just like order yourself some That's cards? What I'm like, I think you just fill out a form. I think Supreme Nurses have a lot of power. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, I would love for you to just tell us a little bit about your Supreme Nursing and your role at the CDC and uh, what you do is so, I mean, obviously it's always been of interest to you, but it's, I feel like it has become so relevant uh, to the lives of so many people in the last few years. And it's something we've talked about on, on the show um, quite a bit, which is opioid addiction. And so can you just tell us a little bit about your your life in nursing and, and how it intersects with that issue? Yeah, um, it is sort of complicated to explain. I mean, just because it's a story more mm. than a job title. But um, I'm trained as a nurse, but my entire nursing career, I have worked only with people um, who really who inject drugs mm. is my specialty. And with the opioid crisis right now, um, I'm now working at CDC. So basically, I'm my title is Associate Research Fellow, which is kind of meaningless, but I'm there to help them apply the harm reduction framework, which is the work that I've done my whole life, um, to sort of practical solutions for the opioid crisis. And so a lot of it is really helping bring needle exchange, or as we like to call them, syringe services programs, um, get them throughout the country where people need them. So traditionally, they've been around for over 30 years in the United States in places like New York and San Francisco and LA and Chicago, where there's been a really long urban injection drug use um, 
issues. Um, but as the opioid crisis has really changed the face of who is using, and now we're seeing this happen in rural America and places that really don't have services for people who inject drugs. Mm. And so working with communities to try to help them figure out how to do this and how to do it well. So how do you see gender play out in your in this world, in your job? It's really big. And so I think first, like when you just look at the opioid crisis, like one of the unique hallmarks of what's happening right now is that we're seeing women inject drugs at an equal rate of men. Mm. It used to be about a two to one male to female ratio. And then as that's happening, we're seeing um, women. So women are using more. Women have their own special vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, They always have. I've always worked with people who are homeless or experiencing homelessness or who inject drugs. And women have always sort of had unique vulnerabilities, either just being on the street and being a woman. Um, There's a lot of sexual trauma and victimization that can happen. But now we also, there's a lot of sort of concern from the federal government about women of childbearing age. Mm. Um, We're seeing rises at rising hepatitis C rates. And so then it's also happening to babies. And one of the big things I want to do is, yes, let's, you know, make sure that let's try to keep babies from being born with opioid addiction, but let's not do it at a way that we further victimize or traumatize women. So trying to manage that, I think, is one of our big challenges right now. Well, thank you. I feel like I understand your job a lot better than I ever have before. I still think you're a supreme nurse, but I know there's a lot more to it than I thought. Yeah, thanks. So we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing today, well, today, this week. And my heart has been singing ever since. So it's the day after Thanksgiving, and we came up yesterday to have dinner with you and your daughter and your folks and I always my feminist heart always sings when I get to see you interact with your baby because you're such a like an awesome mom daughter duo and I just sometimes I don't know have you ever seen the movie Orlando no so um it stars Tilda Swinton it's a great movie and Orlando is there's like I don't know he starts off as a man and is immortal and then becomes a woman at some point. It's a very uh, convoluted story. But at some point after becoming a woman in the 20th century, Orlando has a baby. And at the end of the movie, she's riding her motorcycle and her baby is in the sidecar. Her, Her little daughter, I guess she's probably like five at that point. And they both have matching like mommy-daughter goggles and motorcycle helmets, and they just, like, ride off into their life. And I kind of visualize you in Ambient. <laughs> <laughs> I love your that. motorcycle with your sidecar and your goggles. You know, I used to always say I, I dreamt a dream of a moped with a sidecar, mm. and, you know, I always had a dog for a long time, so I always wanted to have a sidecar for him. But you just gave me a new goal to work towards. I mean, yeah, just for like around the neighborhood, I think it would be perfect. That would be a dream. You and Emmy. Okay, so this is, yeah, I've, I've loved spending Thanksgiving here with your family. And um, we we consumed some, some feminist media yesterday also, which I want to give a shout out to 
a movie I I had never heard of and probably would never have seen unless you recommended it. Baby Cakes. No. Patty Patty Cakes. Cakes, Excuse me. Patty Cakes, which was amazing. It was so good. It's one of the best movies out there. It's so great. Can you just give a sort of a, you know, 45 second synopsis for folks who might not know it? Yeah, it's such a movie worth seeing. So Patty Cakes, um, money sign for the S with the cakes is <laughs> of course. Um, is a overweight white female rapper living in New Jersey who wants to make it big. Um, and it's just a movie about her struggles. It's just her and her mom and her grandma live together. Her mom's an alcoholic. She works at a bar, Patty Cakes does, and just tries to write rhymes, and her rapping is incredible. So good. And um, just so the movie, it's a great story. It's The music is amazing, and it's really, like, heartbreaking and funny and uplifting all in one. And I've seen it, like, it's been out for less than a year, and I think I've seen it about six times. (laughs) And (laughs) we'll happily watch it with anyone who wants. I think the next time I come to your house, I kind of want to watch it again so i found like times two and three were some of the best times watch like second and third watches Mm -hmm. were the best it's definitely one of those movies where you're going to see more every time that you that you watch it um i loved it i loved her character i just thought she was i thought the acting was brilliant the music was brilliant it's yeah it's great everybody should see it and then we also watched the lena waith thanksgiving episode of master of none which i had seen once a couple years ago well, maybe, I don't know if it's been out a couple of years. I saw it once no. when a Master of None first came out, and um, we decided to watch it again last night. And, and again, it was I saw so much more in it than I had seen the first time. And I think that is a great Thanksgiving tradition that I want to keep up. Like, yeah. what a great show to watch every Thanksgiving. Absolutely. I kind of wish that they would add more Thanksgivings to it. Like, I, know they should. <laughs> I was like, well, what about 2018? Like, what's Jeff doing now? They what, still are. are um, is she still with Michelle? Like, I'd, <laughs> I want his grandma still alive. I know. I kept worrying, even though I'd, I'd actually seen it twice before, mm-hmm. and for some reason I kept worrying that Grandma was going to die, even yeah. though. But, um, you know, Dev, if you're listening, or Aziz, if you're listening, mm-hmm. um, season three still hasn't come out, so you could throw in another Thanksgiving there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a suggestion from, yeah. from one artist to another. You know? <laughs> <laughs> just, just something to think about. Um, okay, so do you want to talk about? I have I have a few more things, but they're um, they're kind of small. Is there any, any anything that made your feminist heart sing this week? So the first thing that came to mind, it's so I usually feel like if you're talking feminists and feminism, you should be talking about women. Mm-hmm. Um, just a rule of life um, because men get so much attention in other media. Not to say that men can't be feminists. However, I do have to say when you first asked me, you know, to sort of think on what would make my heart sing was the news that Sean King is relaunching the North Star. Oh, yeah. And I feel like it's just so important and it's a platform that will celebrate and empower women as well as people of color and, you know, so many important groups. And um, I think that's it's really really important that it's happening and i just want to support him in his work and 
that's really what jumped out to me first. Nice. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had I had read an article about it um, a few weeks ago and that that news came out and my first thought was does Sean King ever sleep because the guy I mean he's he has his own pack now he's relaunching the North Star he's yeah he's a he's an active guy yeah and I guess I just started following him on Instagram and then like He's also just like a person with like, you know, a wife or a partner Mm. and a kid and like just sort of was like, how does he have time to be? I just get always really taken by people who seem to be everything. Like it's so hard to manage personal and professional and especially when they're so folded together Mm -hmm. like that and that for someone to be so relentlessly successful in their efforts, um, and then be human, like yeah. just blows my mind. Well, on the topic of being relentlessly successful, but also human, I so the thing, a couple things I wanted to bring up. But the first was that I started reading Michelle Obama's. Me and everybody else in the country <laughs> apparently started reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, and it's just so good. I mean, she is. I I didn't think I could love her more, and I her writing and the way that she tells this story and again I mean I've only gotten as far as her uh, when she goes to Princeton but she's I mean it's really um, a beautiful combination of like very skilled narrative storytelling and also it truly I mean I think a lot of times by you know autobiographies don't don't spend enough time sort of you might get a few snippets of like someone's formative years, but she was really deliberate in, in fact, talking about becoming, you know, who the building blocks of who she is and the things that are important to her and how those things were introduced to her at various stages of life through various people. It sounds like her parents were just amazing. And, you know, she's, really weaves that together um and and there's just a lot of humor in it too (laughs) at one point she talks about she is good friends with jesse jackson's daughter and she talks about how exciting it is to be at their house and there's all these politicians there and they're so you know they're always planning and protesting and and you know just she's sort of right in the middle of him this is when he's kind of gearing up to to run for president and but that they're also she's also she and and the daughter are also dependent on the her parents and their staff for rides places so she's like it's really exciting and she says something like you know i'm all for empowering black youth and you know down with that cause but i'm also really needing to get to the mall before the case swiss sale ends you know, like, <laughs> she's like, there's just so many great examples of that where she's like yeah, like I was, you know, I get it and I care, but also like I'm a kid, I'm a teenager and I, you know, I, I need to be a teenager. So, she, and that, um, that self-awareness and that humor just permeates the whole book so far. So love it. I think, what did I read to you this morning? It, like nine copies of that book are being sold every second right now or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I totally believe it. I've heard the audio book also is, is fantastic. So I'm hoping to run to it soon once yes. I finish my current podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's just such a powerful, amazing woman. I love her. 
Um, this is slightly unrelated, but for some reason, this story popped into my mind. Um, but so I live in Atlanta, and one of my favorite things to do when people first come visit is take them to Ebenezer Baptist Church and mm. sit there, and you can listen to Martin Luther King's um, speeches are piped through, and there's one person who's like the official sanctioned Martin Luther King impersonator, and he sometimes is there and will give speeches, and it's very powerful. Wow, I don't, I didn't know that even existed. Yes, yes, and um, and then you can you know walk through the um, Dr. Martin Luther King's Junior Center, and it's a great place. So when I first moved here, I took my mom there, as I take everybody. And we left, and she just sort of said, my mom is not someone who, like, talks about her childhood a lot. And we left, and she was like, you know, after Dr. King was shot, Coretta moved um, to Claremont, California, and lived across the street from my parents. What? Yeah, and I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, and she and your grandma were really good friends, and they would play cards all the time. This, this seems like a story you probably should have heard before, like, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Your grandma's not still alive, is she? No, Damn. and she had Alzheimer's as long as I knew her. Mm. But um, I know, right? Like, stories worth knowing. Mm-hmm. The other thing I wanted to mention was that, um, so the Clinton affair has been airing this week on A&E, um, or aired this week. And it was kind of a, like a little mini series. And I also had just finished the Slate podcast, um, Slow Burn. The second season was all about the um, Clinton Monica Lewinsky quote unquote scandal. Well, I don't know. I mean, no quotes. It was, it a, was scandal. a scandal. It was a bona fide scandal. It's scandalous. It yeah. still is. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, I've been very heartened to see, and I did not watch the entire Clinton affair on Annie, but I know that Monica Lewinsky was involved in, she appeared on that show. Um, and she's, you know, traditionally been very silent about this and and has chosen to speak out um, for, in this particular case. She wasn't on the Slow Burn podcast. But I've been really heartened to see how deeply each of these series looked at um, the gender dynamics and also the sort of conflicting feminist narratives that surround surrounded that affair. So, um, you know, at the time, the, you know, there was this kind of conflict between viewing Monica Lewinsky as a victim, you know, the victim of a powerful man who really took advantage of an intern I mean, obviously the power dynamic was wildly different in that um, in that scenario, but then there was also a very vocal contingent, um, and I would say, really kind of the the dominant narrative that emerged from women at that time was that Monica Lewinsky basically was a grown ass woman who could make her own decisions, and that this was a consensual. Um, relationship, and so you know, trying to trying to characterize this as some sort of um, predatory situation was in fact like really disingenuous and really harmful. Yeah, I it's so, because at the time, I mean, I was youngish. Like I think we were, I was still in high school when it happened. It was 98. Yeah, so I was a senior in high school. And it was, I think like I was a very passionate feminist then. Um but I think sort of the narrative was that, like it was maybe feminist to say that she had her own agency in mm-hmm. this and that 
But I think part of why I was like, it is scandalous is that now thinking about the power dynamics mm-hmm. that um, we're really at play there. And um, and I think especially in today's society, just we understand like the there's a lure of powerful men, but there's also like a lack of control that women have around power. Not, women lose control, lose their own ability sometimes to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And in this case, like now you can look at it and see so clearly how she was very much a victim of his power. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, and again, it's not only that she didn't have, you know, that she, her power wasn't equal, but also that she was in many ways really vilified and mo- her appearance was mocked, her morality. I mean, she was, um, really portrayed by the media as I think I was reading something earlier as, you know, either sort of a stalker or a slut, you know, and um, Linda Tripp also totally vilified. And, you know, Linda Tripp was interviewed for the Slate podcast and she basically said, Monica Lewinsky was the age of my daughter and I just saw something completely horrifying and disgusting happening to her and I had to do something like that. So she was really coming at it from this kind of me too perspective where then, you know, the rest of the world just saw her as like this, you know, really treated her like this lying, backstabbing, conniving kind of witch and, um, who was complicit in bringing down the president. So, um, and then Juanita Broderick also, who was forced to relive her trauma as part of the star investigation and then she, you know, she was kind of cast aside because her story of, um, you know, her allegations that Clinton sexually assaulted her didn't strengthen their perjury or obstructed obstruction of justice case. And so they were just kind of like, eh, like, so they, you know, all of these women were, were abused, um, debatedly, debatedly by the president, depending sort of on which, um, which camp you were in. Um, and interpreting that story, but, and definitely by the media and definitely by the investigators. So um, although these are not, um, you know, this isn't happy subject matter, what made me happy was that this modern analysis really went there and and looked very kind of unflinchingly at the way that this played out and took the time to really kind of unpack what women were saying at the time, what how they feel about it now. Um, you know, and, and really devote the, um, the, you know, sort of media real estate, because you don't have much when you're producing a series like that, to, to looking at that, um, those feminist dynamics. So I really appreciate that. If, um, as a side note, if you have not heard Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk, it's fantastic. Um, so listeners, definitely check that out. She's really emerged as a, a very thoughtful spokesperson for people who have been bullied and mistreated in the way that she was. I think she has turned what must, I mean, she said it herself. It almost, you know, drove her to the brink of suicide. And she talks about how her mom would stand outside the bathroom door, just was so afraid for her. But what she has been able to create out of that experience Mm -hmm. um, is just amazing. I think she's a pretty incredible person. Yeah. I, I like her on Twitter too. She's a, she's a good person to follow. I've got to learn to Twitter. We'll work on it. Okay. We'll get you. you. We'll get you tweeting. Are you ready to give some advice? Yes. Okay, good. Love giving advice. Perfect. All right. Here's the question. 
Dear Feminist Hot Dog, how do you reconcile the fact that you are no longer interested in sex? Should you feel bad? There are just so many other things I'd rather do. <laughs> um, I think it's okay to say I don't like sex and still be a normal person who is an advocate for female rights. This is still the question, by the way. This is not me editorializing. Um, and still be a normal person who is an advocate for female rights. Is there a word to capture that you can be physically attracted to someone but not want to fuck them? That's basically where I'm at. There are so many different reasons for not liking sex. It would be interesting to unpack these reasons. In my case, it is mostly physical. But because of this, I have become conditioned to feel punished every time I have a sexual encounter. Oh. And unfortunately, modern medicine has not focused on making sex pleasurable or even possible for women in many cases. I mean, it wasn't until 1993 that it was a law to include women in studies at the NIH. Signed, here for love, but not for sex. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, it's okay to do, yes, it's totally okay, and it's totally okay to be a normal person to not want to have sex. But to not like sex, I feel like that would need to be unpacked a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, people deserve pleasure in their lives in all sorts of ways. And, you know, the idea of sex, it shouldn't be a job. And so if it's seen as a job, then that's, you know, then that, of course, shouldn't happen. But if there's something that stops, I'm sorry, what's here for love, but mm -hmm. not for sex, from ha I mean, she. Sa it sounds like there have been past experiences that have that don't allow her to experience sex as pleasurable. And my thought is that she would possibly want to think about exploring that a little bit more and trying to like she deserves to experience pleasurable sex. And so, while it's totally okay not to have sex. And I'm going to come up, I want to come up with a good word. I think we can do this. <laughs> um, I also think that, like, part of me wants to say, like, you know, you should talk to somebody and find a way to do it, but not as a job, but just as something that you, she possibly deserves in her life. Does that make sense? I, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. My guess is that, you know, if... Um, I think this person is in a relationship, so I don't know how if they've if they've done any sort of explorations of alternative way. You know, if they don't want to have like if she doesn't want to have vaginal intercourse, then there are other options, obviously. Um, but it sounds like what she's saying is they're just that she's just kind of over it. Like that that's not interesting to her anymore. And I I've. I've definitely heard that from other women. And then also this idea that being uninterested in sex some, somehow makes you a bad feminist, like that you are, uh, that we've worked so hard to be seen as deserving of, of pleasure and to have autonomy over our bodies and to, and to be, you know, viewed as, as sexual and not just as like the recipients of, uh, or, you know, the, the vessels for men um, and that this somehow, you know, her the way, feeling the way that she does somehow violates that. I'm, I'm getting a, that sense from this letter too. So um, 
I guess to an extent, it kind of depends on whether you feel like it's having a negative toll on your relationship. That's, that's another question that I would ask is, what does your partner think? Is this something that is kind of holding you back? Or do you feel like you're able to find intimacy in other arenas in your relationship, you know, in other ways that are, keep that bond, um, you know, really strong? And I do think that's, you know, I think especially like I'm not in a relationship right now, but I know people who've been married for a long time. I think that I'm sure sex gets to be it's routine or there's, yeah, that like it, it doesn't to be sexual or feel sexy and have sex do not have to be this one in the same. You should be able to be mutually exclusive like she if she can find intimacy in other ways, if she and her partner can explore different ways to just make each other feel good, and that doesn't always even mean physically. Like, there is lots of room for it. And I think, though, yeah, I think that feminism sort of in many ways came out, sort of modern feminism in many ways came out of the sexual revolution, and so it is very tied to women and sex, but I think that, yeah, of course you are a feminist as long as you want equal rights and, you know, empowerment for women. That is feminism. It's not about sex. And I think there is a word for people who are attracted to other people but don't want to have sex. I mean, is that what being asexual is? Or is she's saying physically attracted? Yeah, so, so I'm yeah, not sure if that's I think the same thing. Me either. I think it's just like, I want to say, at first I was like, well, that's a crush. Mm. <laughs> 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 well, maybe she has a crush on her partner, yeah, which, which be, is like the cutest too. thing in the world. Yeah, um, yeah I don't, because I feel like asexual again, and it has a negative context. I, I know that people are happy calling themselves asexual but in like the larger societal sense it has a negative context and I wouldn't want to label her as that because although I think the asexuals are taking it back well that's why I was saying like you know in the I understand that and I think but I was saying society as a whole yeah that's true yeah but maybe you should explore the asexual movement and see if that's something that speaks to you that's a good idea yeah Maybe that is maybe that is what she's experiencing, and she just hasn't necessarily kind of had a name for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm, something to think about. Yeah, um, I am really intrigued, and I want to get your take on somebody you know, as someone who works um, in the medical field and for the government. This idea that you know the NIH and I don't know about the CDC, but um, not really prioritizing women's health until relatively recently is is that your perspective as well I mean I think that you know again like my field is so I'm so specialized mm-hmm. in my work um and the bef- I've only been in part of CDC for a few years and before that I was with a research group in San Francisco and we always did a lot of special work around the unique risks and experiences of women. Mm. So I've always had the pleasure of working with and for mostly women. Um, But I think as a whole, I mean, think about it. So most medications that exist, they've been around a long time. They um, They were basically developed only 
on men, but tested on men. And so, you know, most medications really are there to work for men. And we don't know about how they, um, like they, we didn't think about what women, how women might react to medications, how it might affect them until, yeah, the 90s. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, pretty. I can definitely understand her struggle because it sounds like she's been um, really through the ringer physically and has not found any solutions from the medical establishment either, which is so hard. Right, and I think like most times, right, we women are so psychologized mm. like everything it's it's in your head it's in your head like you know and I, I said it I said it to you and I'm sorry you should talk to somebody you know like um but you're right like nobody's like out there or nobody's getting funded to develop medication like, there's so much out there that enhances men's pleasure and think of all the erectile dysfunction medications that are covered by Medicaid and think of all the things for women that are not, mm. um, including now, you know, we had that be brief, beautiful moment with the ACA where you could basically get free birth control. That's no longer available to most women. Um, but yet, if you have erectile dysfunction, God forbid that happen. And of course, everybody will pay for that. Oh, it, people will be lining up to pay for it. Yep. Yep. Yikes. All right. Well, here for love but not for sex we are here for you and i really hope that this answer helped you in some way and i hope you'll let us know how how things are going forward all right we're gonna talk about the feminist hot dog hall of fame yay do, do, do. so do you want to go first and talk about your hall of fame inductee well, sure. Um, I actually have two. Oh, great. My first one is, so this is both mine. You know, they're going to happen to be informed by my work. Um, but my first one is Florence Nightingale. Oh, wow. Cool. Yes. I'm a huge fan of Florence. So I think people know the name, but maybe don't necessarily know the story. So Florence Nightingale is known as the mother of modern nursing. Um, she is a feminist in so many ways, but long story short, she came from a very high-class European family and basically rejected all notions of what femininity was. Um, she refused to settle down and marry and have children, much to like the chagrin of her parents, although they did raise her to be extremely liberal. Um, and during the Crimean War, she... Um, and at the time, nurses weren't regarded as nursing was not a valued profession. Mm. And so when Florence Nightingale announced that she was going to go work at the um, medical tents in the Crimean War, her family was just devastated. And when she got there, the conditions were horrendous. Mm. And she basically had these like really simple ideas that shape modern medicine today around like, what if we put everybody in their own bed and gave them clean sheets? And just by simple sanitary me measures, she cut down infections, which was really what was killing people more than the war itself. Um, she saved thousands and thousands of lives. Later on, she went back to um, Europe, to London, and she did a lot of work. She um, played a huge role in changing laws that were um, hugely criminalizing of sex workers. Um, mm -hmm. 
and really fought for women's rights throughout. I did not know that. I only knew about the nursing part. That's so cool. Yeah, she's really great. I love her. So, um, well, maybe I'll say, I'll do mine, and then you can you can say your second one. That would be great. So my choice was inspired by you and your parents and all of the awesome travel conversations that we have had um, this weekend. So um, Alice and her folks are big time travelers. I saw your folks are like diamonds, diamond medallion. So the the top of the top, they go all over the world. It's very inspiring. So the woman that I picked is named Nikki Vargas. And she is a travel writer and blogger who earlier this fall launched uh, the first travel magazine uh, focused on female readership, and it is called Unearth Women. And it is, she describes Unearth Women as a feminist print and digital travel publication that aims to champion female travelers, challenge the male-dominated industry, and unearth women's stories globally. Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I really want, maybe I'll get you a subscription for Christmas. That would be great. Yes. So uh, this I thought was int- uh, was a really interesting fact. So 70% of travel consumers are women. That really kind of surprised travel me. Travel consumers. I'm not quite sure exactly how that's okay. measured, but maybe we can ask Nikki. Yeah. Uh, women make up 85% of travel purchasing decisions. So, wow. I mean, when you think about it, that doesn't surprise me as much because when I think, you know, you think about like, oh, um, honey, we're going to go on vacation. I would say in, you know, and this is, of course, in, in heterosexual families, um, the the wife or the, the female partner is often the one kind of actually sitting down and, and making, making it happen. happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Yeah, so that's interesting too. And in and she says most yet most travel writing is not done by or for women. And she's looking to change that with the with the magazine. Um, she also says um, that she's really conscious of the imagery that she uses in Unearth Women um, because women in travel advertisements and in social media tend to be a certain style. And I'm quoting her here: a certain style, a certain race and a certain body type, and it's very non-indicative of real women who travel. It makes it look like women who travel are all white, blonde, and young. We invite women to share their travel photos with us that are unedited. We've gotten such great response with mothers and their kids on top of mountains after a rainstorm. Their hair is frizzy, and they look happy. We're trying to directly fight the problems within the travel industry from sexism to ageism to lack of diversity with the stories that we put out. I love that. So cool. Um, She also talks about how women travel writers can access cultural spaces often that men cannot. So you find yourself like in the kitchen or you know, with the kids, you know, you might find yourself in, in more sort of traditionally female dominated spaces that just, you know, as a, as a male writer, you would not either pursue or really be allowed in. Um, so, and that that's where a lot of the, the sort of tend to be like the cultural engines can, you know, can come out of the, out of those spaces. So the first issue, um, is the fall t- uh, 2018 issue 
features Gloria Steinem, um, Amanda Lindhout, who is a woman who was kidnapped in Somalia and now writes and speaks about what she learned about that experience. So I'm very interested to read about her. Um, she oh, it also includes a story about the anti-poaching, an anti-poaching group called the Black Mambas. And the cover story is about um, a woman named Isabel Yuang, Y-U-A-N-G, who is a reporter for Vice Magazine and goes all over the world reporting on um, just really intense stories, many of many of which do focus on um, the experiences of, of women in some pretty um, extreme and dire uh, situations. So yes, it has some of the traditional trappings of a traditional travel magazine, but it is also um, really focuses on these amazing narrative stories and is really diverse in its approach to choosing the kinds of stories that its readership um, would care about. So, so yay, Nikki, thank you so much for, for doing this and welcome to the hot dog hall of fame. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, that sounds so great. Um, it makes me think of just like being in Turkey and hanging out, being in a bath, a women's bathroom in Turkey where all the women have their head scarves off and they're doing their hair mm. and it's sort of the secret world of women that, you know, public men would never get to see or, um, I lived, worked in Tanzania for a long time and there, you know, women, everybody's very, very, you know, conservative. It's a very religious place. People are either Christian or Muslim and whichever they are, they are very religious. But um, if you got with a group of women only, like there were so many dirty jokes and <laughs> sex talk going on. And I once told a an American male colleague of mine this and he was just like no way and you know the secret world of women is so beautiful and important and multicultural it's I'm excited to hear about this absolutely yes well we'll we'll have to get get twin issues and read it together the yeah. next time we hang out all right, so I want to hear about your your last lady. So my next entry into the Feminist Hot Dog Hall of Fame is Edith Springer, and she is the mother of harm reduction. Oh, cool. Yeah, so basically um, in the 80s when um, the AIDS epidemic hit and Edith Springer, had, she was trained as a social worker and she knew about... Um, she, but she, she, sorry, so she was trained as a social worker, but she also struggled with addiction. And at the time, you know, abstinence-only 12-step program was really all that was out there for people. Um, either you were a good person who didn't use drugs or you were a bad person. Mm. And, but she had heard about in Amsterdam, there was this movement that had happened where drug users started fighting back against pharmacies that wouldn't give them clean syringes. Um, and she brought the ideas to the U.S. and started teaching mostly sex workers again about how to have safe sex and how to use drugs safely and was one of eventually um, sort of brought through the principles of harm reduction, which, you know, really treats that um, that the foundations of harm reduction, that you meet people where they're at, that there is people can use drugs safely and people deserve to live and deserve to be safe no matter what they're doing and she you know impacted the work i do hugely but just brought a movement to the united states that saved millions of lives that's awesome tell me her name again her name is edith springer 
Edith Springer will welcome to the Hall of Fame. Edith, is she still alive? She's not. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of like... Posthumous induction. I kind of like that you had two... Post, is that how you say that word? Posthumous? Posthumous. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to correct you. I was, like, actually asking because I... I've, I, my vocabulary is mostly from reading, and so I, I've gone through life mispronouncing a lot of words that I just assumed was, were said one way, and they are not. So who knows? If you know how to say that word and you'd like to, to tell us, please um, please write in and let us know. Okay, so we've, we've done the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. We've, we've hopefully helped um, Here for Love and... Celebrated Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm so glad you're with us. I'm so thankful to be here and thankful to um, everyone who's been listening. And I uh, wanted to also thank you to Ava Luna and Royalty Freak Music for providing our intro and outro music. This is Feminist Hot Dog. Thanks so much for listening. Love yourself. Love your bones.